originally from Persephone, New Jersey. It's like a Sopranos town, like, you know, maybe half an hour outside the city or whatever. Um, when I was, you know, maybe six years old, I already started getting into pop music and, you know, Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, like the hard rock heavy metal thing was just starting up in the 80s. It was like 1980, literally. Michael Jackson, Thriller, all that. And then I kind of just went through the motions like I think most suburban people did at that time. Like you kind of started with hard rock and then you got into Iron Maiden and the heavier stuff into Metallica and Slayer. And 86, I was 11 years old. That was the year of like literally Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax, Overkill, Slayer. Changed my life instantly realized there was this new way to be heavy and it was way heavier than Kiss or Twisted Sister, you know? And I still like those bands too, but I was always like a drug looking for the new heavy, I call it. Like I've just always been looking for the new heavy. But I even mean, I heard heavy in John Coltrane. I could hear it in Miles Davis. I could hear it in Mozart. I could hear it in Beethoven. I mean, dun, 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 dun. It's a mosh part right there, right? I mean, so um, I just knew from the age of nine, like mosh parts were kind of everything. The riff was kind of everything didn't really matter what genre of music you were listening to. I mean, if you listen to Katy Perry right now, she's got riffs on her record, you know? They're doing them with 808s and maybe not with guitars, but it's all still the same concept. Chuck Berry, right? Just a bunch of chords that you put together that people can march around or dance. Exactly, around, good, good right? rhythm. I think especially back in the 80s, late 80s, when I was really into the hardcore thing, I was going to CBGBs from like 87 to 92, I was going to Wetlands, Pyramid, Continental, all the classic. New York, uh, you know, hardcore stuff. I was and I was roading for a lot of these bands. You know, there were the Biohazards and the Sick of It Alls and all this kind of, you know, Bad Brains, Leeway, Agnostic, Murphys, Chromax. All that stuff was like my Bible. Um, so that's what happened. Was '86. I thought like Slayer was heavy. I thought Metallica was heavy. And and before that, I thought Pyromania was heavy. You know what I mean? So it just kind of kept getting heavier and heavier. '87 rolls around, and that's when I really got out of metal. And to answer your question about regarding rhythm. I noticed with bands like Outburst and Breakdown and, you know, even the Biohazards and stuff like that, um, you know, they weren't as good as the metal guys. You know, the metal guys could really play, like like Dave Mustaine, I mean, come on, all those guys in Megadeth, it's like ridiculous. Like classical music, basically, when you listen to Metallica, right? But what I noticed with the hardcore and, and punk bands, I mean, you could even take it to California punk bands like the Germs and, you know, even bands like the Dead Boys and stuff like that, the Ramones. They weren't as good musically, but they had a fucking awesome feel with their rhythms, with the drums. You know, maybe the drummer's not sticking as hard as like Lars Ulrich or Dave Lombardo, but you hear that like, it's like, it's not, it's, you know, and like that would just get the floor moving, you know? And so 87, I just kind of graduated to the hardcore thing. Bad Brains was like number one, you know? And then literally by 88, it was Public Enemy, it was Cypress Hill, it was Gangstar, it was all that stuff. And Public Enemy was the beginning of me going, wow, these guys don't even have guitar and this shit makes Slayer seem like Light FM. Like this is insane when you, you guys again are young. They never got the credit, Sonic. They never they got really the credit. Adventurous. I mean, they kind of did at the time, but yeah, as history has gone on, they were literally the, 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 the group, you know? Like you kind of realize like they could sample a tea kettle and that was was heavier than brown you know it was like they made a riff out of a fucking tea kettle you know and they put it over a james brown beat and this is the heaviest thing i've ever heard in my life you know so um that was literally the the light bulb going off i remember i was in a bunch of hardcore bands in high school i started like in 13 when i was 13 i played drums in some bands i played guitar in some bands we would open for like super touch gorilla biscuits you know like the classic 
heyday of hardcore or whatever. Um, so it was really cool, but I do remember by the time I was 18, telling the guys in like my last band, like, yo, I got sounds in my head and it's bigger than drums, bass, and two guitars, you know? Like, I wanna do something that's, and at the time I wasn't sampling yet. I hadn't discovered the sampler. So in my mind, I kept calling it orchestral, you know? Like I kept saying like, I can hear like an orchestra of sound in my head, but I don't think we're gonna do it by playing it like CVGVs with drums, bass, and two guitars, you know? Like even it's not, nowadays, with, with even nowadays, especially yeah. nowadays, yeah, you know? Sound design is is part of composition nowadays, you know. So you really need those other elements to, you know, have a complete, I don't know, package of them. So at the time, I was already thinking that way. Up to like '93, I started my first recording studio. I had like a little eight-track setup, and I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm kind of tired of playing in bands. I felt like um, it was really fun in high school and stuff, but I felt like there was a lot of compromising, meaning like. Like I said, I had these ideas. It wasn't like I was trying to be some fucking Billy Corgan or something, but I definitely had these ideas. The guys in the hardcore scene didn't really hear, you know? And like the, even my, my close guys, when I was playing with them, we just couldn't really execute. So I was like, you know, let me not be in a band for a minute. I've been in bands for like six years now. Let me just record. I got really obsessed with sound and I got into the, the typical thing most producers that work with bands. How do you get a good drum sound? Yeah, that's all I cared about was fucking drums, you know? So for a long time, I was just doing a lot of jazz records where I would cut these quintets like drums, bass, trombone, trumpet, and grand piano live to two track, no overdubs, no mixing. We'd make a 13 song album in three hours. Like these jazz guys made punk records seem like metal, you know, like way too long, you know? And um, so I started to understand about capturing sound. And this was a moment when like guys like Steve Albini were really popular, you know? Everybody was obsessed with like, don't manipulate, don't mess with the recordings, just put the mics up and capture the room. And since I had done a lot of these like legendary jazz guys, I went to William Patterson. They had the second best jazz program in the country outside of Berkeley or Juilliard or whatever it was. So I was working with like flamenco guys from Spain, you know what I mean? Like like Polish trombone players that would play like Coltrane level, you know, the musicalities. So I was learning on one end by recording at school, but then in my parents' basement, I had a studio called Sweetwood Sound. And that was where I did all these indie bands. And I started with my punk connects, like the first record Four. I ever, Floor Punch, yeah, yeah, Ass Factor 4, like a bunch of these, you know, I, I did it a lot in the beginning. Uh, 93 to like 98, 99, I did Burnt by the Sun. Like I was doing a lot of these types of heavier bands, but the reason they were kind of coming to me was because what I learned from the jazz records I was making, where I was just like not using reverb units, I was using room mics to make the drum sound bigger and not using too much processing, just trying to get the, the band to sound good in the room and then kind of capture that on, onto you know tape or whatever. The first punk band, the first record I ever made was a band called Whole Shot. These were guys that were in bands when I was like literally 14. Like the drummer was on Agnostic Front, Victim in Pain when I was 14 years old. Like there was a band called Mental Abuse that influenced Sick of It All. And they, they came from my town, Mental Abuse, you know, in New Jersey. So I grew up with like all these kind of like legendary guys that had influenced the next wave of hardcore. But like those guys like Sick of It All knew about mental abuse and they'd be like, yo, like they knew they were from my town and shit like that. And um, Charles was, you know, the, the guy that ran Gern Blanston Records. He was in a band called Rorschach back in the day. And uh, he was the singer. So they called him in for a 45 Grave cover. One of those bands, 45 Grave or 45 Cross. I can't remember uh, 
what they were called, but it was a legendary like 70s or 80s band or whatever. So Charles came in to do a backing vocal, a guest vocal on the record, and he liked my setup and I was cheap. I think I was charging like 150 bucks for the day. It was like $15 an hour or something. And I just wanted to learn. And literally on my first record I made with this band, Whole Shot, Charles and I just hit it off. And uh, and he had a label called Burn, Burn Blanston and he had just signed a band called Rye Coalition. He had a band called The Band Pelt. He had this guy, Ted Leo, who was in a band called Chisel. He had a band called Garden Variety. He had a, a bunch of bands that were kind of big at that moment in the New Jersey kind of indie, North Jersey kind of indie circuit. And uh, he just started sending them all to me. So then from like 93 to 97, I became the guy. Like I started working for Art Monk. They were a label out of Virginia. They had a band called Transmageddy from the Jersey Shore. They had a band called Seven Story Mountain that literally sounded like the Foo Fighters before the Foo Fighters existed, you know, shit like that. So I was getting firsthand what was happening with indie music, with emo music, with hardcore, with metal, with post-hardcore, new metal. All those things were kind of happening when I was making these records. You could see the evolution all going. So 95, I met Will, that was Dialect, the MC, and uh, me and him were in William Patterson together. We were in a class and uh, he just found that I had a studio and was like, yo, I wanna record a demo. I got like these 10 songs or whatever. So he came in for like a year and, and I was just the engineer. We weren't like collaborating, but all of 95, he would just come in and record like once every couple weeks. After a session, maybe about a, like a five, six sessions in, we got really close, like we got more comfortable with each other. And he brought like a bunch of beers to the session. And after we were done recording, we got really trashed together. And I played him like the Beatles. I was getting really into Velvet Underground. Like I was getting away from hardcore and I was starting to get into classic rock, things I missed when I was growing up, but I thought classic rock was old white people music, you know? Like, I was into hardcore, I was into da Jamaican dance hall, I was into club music, I was into heavy metal, I was into punk. These things were like every week a new record or a demo was coming out. And I was 13 to 18 in those years, so it was all current New York City, you know? And when I would hear like Jethro Tull, you know, it would just seem like, I don't know, man. You know what, later on I went to love Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull and all these things, but. So I, I was kind of catching up when I started the studio because I wanted to learn how the Beach Boys, how the Beatles, how yeah, Phil Spector, all so these, good with such these, minimal equipment. Literally, and from 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever it was. So suddenly, because I got into producing, my ear really opened up and I stopped kind of being a hater and I started just to understand that, again, like I said, we have the same chord progressions, we have the same riffs, we have the same melodies in all music. So it's all literally the same songs. We're hearing like, you know what they say, like, there's only seven stories written and you just hear them over and over. That's what music is. There's only seven songs and we're just hearing them over and over in different packages, right? Me and Will, after a year or so, we, we started to hit it off and I would just kind of play him things I was getting into. And him being a hip hop cat, you know, hip hop heads are a lot more open than, than band guy. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but I've worked with bands for 30 years. I've worked with rappers for 30 years. Rappers will come in and they'll be into anything. Like I work with young 14 to 20 year olds now. They fuck with Marilyn Manson. They fuck with Fall Out Boy. They like System of a Down, Linkin Park, whatever it is. That was shit they liked when they were little kids in the hood or whatever, right? So Will was a lot like that. He liked Iron Maiden and Sabbath and things like that. So when I started showing him things like the Beatles and the Beach Boys, he got kind of obsessed on his own and there was a store called Other Music he would stop at every week and he'd get like movie tone records and broadcast records and all these like weird indie things that were coming out on, you know, Merge and Domino and Drag City and things like that. That 90s era, right, of indie rock. Both of us just started to expand our horizons and I think like about a year of working together, we just said one day, we were like, Yo, I love Mob Deep and Nas and Smith and & Wesson and Black Moon and Wu-Tang and Gangstar, 
but I also love the Velvet Underground and My Bloody Valentine. Like, how the fuck do we get these into one package? And as we said earlier, it was kind of already in front of us with, with, with uh, Public Enemy. All we did was they had the noise kind of in the back and we just pushed the noise like the Stooges just way up Game into the red up front. So Glenn Bronca, the Stooges, you know, Black Flag, Black Sabbath, that style of mixing where the guitar is just like right in your face, the, that's all we did. We just took Public Enemy and kind of made it a little more Sabbath, you know, a little more Glenn Bronca, whatever, wall of sound. And then that was it. We never looked back. It, it just kind of took off. And then I, you know, I still have the studio, but about 10 years ago, I kind of stopped working with bands. I think the last metal band I did was Starkweather. Um, I don't know if you know who they are. They're from Philly. They kind of were like a legendary group for a minute. Um, back in the day, they were like really influential. Before there were like these kind of Meshuggah type of bands, they were like one of those first, you know, super mathy 38 minute songs and shit, you know, like kind of thing. They were cool, cool bands. That was the last kind of band I've done. And that was like 10 years, maybe even 14 years ago. Um, I moved to Berlin. I quit Dialect in 2009, 2010. Um, it was kind of amazing. Our, I was in the group for 15 years. Our first tour was, uh, you know, playing in VFW halls and people's basements in Iowa, people's garages in Bloomington, Indiana and shit like that. And our last tour, we got to open for Tool every night for, for a month, you know, and, and play in front of 18,000 people a night. And um, those guys were big fans of Dialect. So they, they, they paid us well, they took care of us. So I got to pay off uh, credit card debts that I had for 20 years. And so, you know, big ups Tool and Adam and those guys. But um, so it was, for me, it was a good complete cycle. It was like, we started this, this kind of really underground and we ended in the opening for the, one of the biggest bands of all time, you know? So, then, um, so then you moved to Berlin. And so then I moved to Berlin, correct. You feel a great pivot since you've gravitated more towards electronic music. Absolutely. You're a fan of electronic music. Funny you say that. Like, so when Dialect first went to Europe was in 99, right? And um, we were opening for this band called The Laps. They were um, a, a Gurren Blanston kind of indie rock band. The drummer Red Fang was playing drums with them at the time. Red Fang didn't exist yet, but it, I've known all those guys for like 30 years before. They were in older bands before Red Fang. So it was a, a nice crew. And I remember we would play like, because in Europe, electronic music has been much bigger since like literally the 70s, because if they have craft work, like that's their blues, especially in places like Germany, like the, they, they don't, they didn't grow up on Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf, they grew up on craft work and stockhousing, you know? So they have a different uh, idea of, of, you know, harmonies and, and, and progressions. And stuff. I noticed in 99, when we would play like in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, like the real techno kind of countries, they would just come up to me afterwards, like these, these minimal techno guys, these house guys and stuff, these producers, and they would just say, I can't believe you guys are making music with boxes. They're like, they're like, it sounds like Black Sabbath. Like it sounds so organic what you're doing. And we're all sample based, you know, everything we were doing was was coming out of an MPC or an ASR 10. You know, we were we were we were electronic music. But I think because we had grown up on a old school hip hop, which had that breakbeat and raw kind of sound sample based, not so much drum machines and uh, synthesizers. And also because we grew up on punk and, and metal records, too. And those records, most of them sound like dog shit. And I love it. You know, it's like perfect. You know, it's an, the other difference between hardcore and metal was most of the hardcore stuff sounded terrible, but it felt great. A lot of the metal stuff could sound impeccable, but it didn't make you feel anything. It didn't make you want to, you know, break everything in your room or whatever. I remember thinking like, it was funny in Europe, they always would be astonished. They'd be like, I don't understand. You guys are making electronic music, but it sounds so acoustic, like it sounds so organic. Exactly what happened is after like 20 years of that, um, you know, I grew up in a Sopranos town with these Italians, mostly Italian people. You know, my family's from India. So in the eighties, they would say, oh, you're Indian. What tribe are you, Navajo, Cherokee? So you could imagine, 
you know, what type of existence I had. So you had this, uh, the IROCs driving around, you know? So I didn't know at the time, but you know, club music is black, trans, gay, Latino, from New York City. It's all from Harlem, uptown Bronx. But growing up in a, in a Guido town, like in a Sopranos town, I just thought that shit was like Italians, like skater die faggot, you know, like that type of shit. Um, so I just kind of was socially biased. And the sad thing is I liked Snap, I liked CNC Music Factory. I liked a lot of this stuff. At the same time, I was listening to Cuddy Ranks and Shaba Ranks and a lot of Jamaican music. And I'm also listening to Pantera, Bogo Display of Power, you know, I'm listening to Helmet. So I, that stuff in my era really crossed over but we didn't want to admit that we liked Snap and, and CNC because we were fighting with these Italian guys every day outside Quick Check or outside 7-Eleven or whatever the fuck it was, you know? So it wasn't until after my whole thing with the recording bands and, and the whole thing, the journey with dialect, after 20 years of that, I just said, you know what, all right, this is cool, but I know how to impress straight dudes, man. I'm a straight guy. Like, just make it really heavy and turn it up, you know? It's easy. Um, I had worked in like 2005 with about a dozen women in, in, in sessions. I, you know, I've been running the studio since 93, so I still run it. And I started to transition out of working with dudes and bands and guitars and all this stuff. And I started getting more into the feminine side of things. And I noticed this one year, like I had a punk band and the girl was a, the drummer was a girl. You know, I had a band, the bass player was a girl. I had a singer songwriter, uh, female. I had a girl that was, uh, a pianist. I had girls in different roles, a violinist. It, uh, about a dozen different girls came through the studio one year and every single one really kicked my ass, man. They really pushed me. Like guys are just a bunch of yes men, yeah. you know? And I started to much realize, without yeah, the women don't you know? give a fuck how it's being done. All guys want to talk about is I have this pedal, I have this guitar, look how I set up my strings. But you, your songs suck, bro. You got all these toys, but you don't got any music. You got nothing to say, you got no product. I make all my music on my fucking phone, bro. I got product for years out here, you know? Like, these guys have all these toys, but they can't write a fucking song, you know? And the girls were not like that. They were more like how I saw it. They just wanted to come in, find the money shots, harvest the money shots, turn everything else the fuck off, and then b build something around what feels good, you know? And that changed how I produced. It was no longer about this nerdy, like we rehearse in the room and this is our song and we come in and hit record and now we have all these, you know, we have guitar texts and drum texts and we're doing, no, man, these girls just come in free. They'll literally like, they would look at me and be like, can you turn the bass up? Like, why is all this other shit on? Can you turn all these other things off? You know, like literally they would just be like, almost like scolding me, you know, like, why is this mix sound like so much bullshit is happening? You know, whereas guys, the more shit you put into a mix, they're like, yeah, you know, like, so that I was never a minimalist uh, composer. I was never a minimal producer. You've heard the dialect records. I come from that Phil Spector wall of sound, you know? Put everything in the mix and just put it all in the red, you know? And the girls, it was really the opposite. We were having these mixes where all I would have left is a bass line and the vocal. And everything else would just get turned off. And you'd listen back and you'd kind of be like, holy shit, man, you know? like. I didn't even know that was possible. You know, you get really excited. You get a so good Prince quote that's like a space is a sound too. It's literally that. And I, I actually got it from a sculptor. Some sculptor said he knows, and I never understood this until I literally read this quote and worked with a lot of these, these younger women. Like, I don't know when I'm done with a piece by how much I have left to add. I know I'm done with a piece when I'm done taking away. Like he would just keep carving it away. And that's when he would know like, all right, this shit's done, you know? But with dialect, it was the opposite. We would just keep adding until we couldn't There's fit forever. anymore, and then we would be done, you know? 
But when I started in like 2005 on, it was the opposite. It was like throw everything in and then just start cutting everything away and whatever's left, there it is, you're done, you know? So I, yeah, so after, you know, 2010, I quit dialect and moved to Berlin. And I consciously was just like, yeah, man, I need to do a whole different thing. I don't want to do the wall of sound. I don't really want to work with like just straight dudes and bands, you know? I said, I'm not gay, I'm not black, I'm not a girl, I'm not trans. How do I write mosh parts for these these communities, these, these, these audiences? You know how much harder it is to step outside of yourself as an artist, still maintain your signatures, still have your vibes, but write with a whole new presentation in mind, you know? I said, I've been impressing straight dudes since I was six years old, you know? And at that point I was like 35. I'm like, yo, how do I get into this other world? And I started getting really into Vogue music. Uh, Vogue had a huge comeback in New York in like 2011, 12, 13. Um, it's all black, trans, gay. I would go to these parties in Midtown at one in the morning. I'd be the only not gay, not black, not trans person in the club. It made me feel like I was in CBGBs again, but instead of gang members, it was like literally like like all these ballroom trans. They would have judges, Rihanna would come, Kanye would come. Like it was real black royalty kind of secret society type of shit. Like you didn't see really any white boys in there. And if you did, they were cool as fuck. Like they were involved in fashion or they were involved in producing or, you know, something like that. Big Frida would come down, you know, shit like that. So um, it was exciting. It was like 2013 and it made me feel like, yo, New York is back on the up and it, it's really feeling like CBGBs again, except instead of the riffs coming from guys from the boroughs and breakdown, the riffs are coming from like these queens from the Bronx and Harlem and they're coming out of 808s, you know? And just like CBs, you'd go every week and there'd be like guys selling demo cassettes outside and you'd get the new Marauder, the new Demise, the new whatever, you could only get it outside CBs. That's how these Vogue nights were. Every week, the DJs would play for two hours before the competitions began, and they would just play the newest productions, the newest rhythms, the newest sounds, the newest beats. And it would be like a brand new, like Rihanna work came out. And then you hear the Vogue remix that night in the club, and it was just like, yo, holy shit, this is like really fresh. This track just came out three hours ago, you know? like. So you want to talk about New York City fresh. Like this was like, that's how it was back in the hardcore and early hip hop days. Every week, a new 12 inch or a new cassette was coming out in hip hop and hardcore. And, and you know, this Vogue thing kind of started doing that. And then at the same time, I started seeing in Brooklyn, all these hipster kind of white boy, like they were all between like 24 and 28, kind of like millennial type of like hipster spots popping up in Bushwick. And I hooked up with a bunch of these um, younger DJ cats and I started DJing out there and I started background audio in 2014. And it was kind of my take on like what's happening in Africa, what's happening in India, what's happening in South America, but also fused with all this new New York shit that's going on, like the Vogue thing. There's a thing called Jersey Club. There's a thing called Philly Club. There's a thing called Baltimore Club. They all started to, to pop up in the teens. And um, so I just started to incorporate all those styles and then I started what eventually became background audio. And um, I've been like a team guy my whole life. Like I like to collaborate with people. I feel like that's where most of the great ideas happen when you when you kind of share. Um, but background audio to me was like my first solo thing. I've never done a solo project. I've never been on my own. And I thought there's a lot of weaknesses that I could I could strengthen on my end. You know, like I'm really good at certain things, but I'm not great at other things, you know? And I thought background audio would be a nice tool for me to like, figure out the stuff that I'm not so great at right now. So that's kind of how it started. And then by 2016, I had a batch of like 20 songs. And um, and I just thought, you know what, man? Labels don't exist anymore. 
nobody that was a dialect fan gives a shit about what I'm doing now. You know, they, I said, if, if dialect was my joy division, I said, background audio is my new order, you know, like it's just really a whole, and you can look at joy division and new order the same way. Joy division was like real dude and punky and gothy and dark and, you know, on drugs, velvet underground. And then they come out with new order just three or four years later. And it's total chick music. It's mosh, it's called mosh parts for chicks. You're trying to bring humanity together. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So, so at this point, you, you, from what I understand, you started your label Internet and Weed. Yes, exactly. That, that was kind of like helping those women. Yes. Had, and kind of main. I feel like it's kind of maintaining that mix. It's exactly. Not letting it get. You it's know, gonna make me watery eye, dude. It's exactly the whole mission. That, I that's mean, it. You maintain that's it. From point A to point B, and it's it's the same mix. You know, it's the not, same not, thing, not, and I'm and I'm finding you know the last uh, eight years, seven years, I've been working with all these hood rappers. I got Flatbush Blood, Blood Gang members coming in. I knew about Pop Smoke when he didn't even rap yet. My uh, some of my guys from Canarsie were seniors when Pop Smoke was in tenth grade, and they used to know him before he even rapped. You know, so I was hearing about these guys. I heard about Extentation in 2015 because my 15-year-old homies from Brooklyn were like, "Yo, you heard this kid X yet?" And I'm like, "Nah." And they played "Look at Me," and I was like, "Yo," you know. So 2014, we had a similar thing happen in pop, hip hop, and R&B that happened in '86 with metal. So 2014 was Justin Bieber Purpose. It was the Beyonce B record. It was Kanye West Yeezus. It was Travis Scott the Antidote. Sounds like fucking Cliff Burton on bass, you know. Um, and, and it was like, you know, maybe two or three other uh, uh, Rihanna anti, uh, Katy Perry, she did the record with Mike Will. So like in 2014, like six or seven pop, R&B and trap records dropped that sounded like dialect. You exactly. know, like literally they took our formula and they figured out we were selling it to white boy punk metal dudes, Wire magazine nerds. And I had always said, again, no offense to anyone, but I wasn't making rap records for white people. I was hoping exactly. that it's, it's not, No, it was always kind of called industrial hip hop. Right, and I never that's called the, it that. I always said we're making hip hop here. The, the yeah. whole the recent label of Deconstructed Club, I think, works a lot better because yeah. it has that. It has a steadier, steadier rhythm. You know, yes. it's not. And you have a lot of trap metal, which is, you know, kind of like sure. someone doing it. Ghost, ghost main, you know, ghost main, right? Yeah, your baseline of, of what, you know, you were doing back in-, in Literally, literally. Of, I mean, there's the so other much thing, more to that. The other thing I'll just say quickly too, is if you look at, especially guys like Drake, Kanye, Beyonce, um, and uh, uh, Rihanna, like, what we did with rap music, people really hated it in the 90s and 00s because we were doing verses, choruses, intro, like on the record Absence, I literally listened to Master of Puppets top to bottom and I wrote down every single part, every arrangement Metallica had and I, I modified, I cut bars that we didn't need and stuff like that, but it would be like intro A, intro A2, intro A3, breakdown, verse, chorus, Tempo change, key change. I mean, we got really musical. And the only other groups were like the Beastie Boys, De La Soul, Public Enemy that would do those types of, you know, beat changes, key changes, tempo changes. So I remember by the time we came out, it was more on that Wu-Tang Gangstar style mob deep where you just had one loop and you just kind of looped it and you just rapped over it. And I love that, but I could never do that. I was always, because I came from bands, I needed the chorus to have a key change. I needed a tempo change for the bridge. I wanted things to slow down so that when it came back for the outro, it felt bigger, you know? So we brought a lot of songwriting and musicalities to rap music and people weren't really ready for it yet. Uh, the Run The Jewels guys, LP, I remember, was in a group called Company Flow. And we had a lot of mutual friends like Justin yeah. from Godflesh, you know, Techno Animal. 
um they would tour together and i remember like lp and those guys they were like yeah the dialect shit's cool but it's just too rock like they didn't get it like they thought because we had these verses and choruses and real structure yeah and structure you know instead of That's it just being a loop with a right so if you look at travis scott now i mean if you look at yeezus it's literally dialect you know like so i feel very happy i remember when kanye did dark twisted fantasy i was living in berlin and a bunch of my u.s homies texted me when uh runaway came out and they were like, yo, that's Paragraphs Relentless on Abandoned Language. It's literally the same groove, the same key, the same BPM, the same guitar. Yeah. And they were like mad. And I was like, why are you mad? This is what I wanted. Yeah, Grandfather man. of modern music. It's literally, I wanted to change the culture. Did, did the Velvet Underground not change the culture? Yes, they changed the culture. Did they become the biggest band in the world? No, but did they change the culture? Yes, right? And that's what dialect, we went in knowing that we were the Velvet Underground at hip hop. Patton used to call us the black flag of hip hop. We knew going in, we wouldn't be the biggest, but we would change the culture. And that's what we did, you know? So yeah, that, that was another reason when I started getting into more feminine sounds, a uh, gayer product, blacker product, the club thing, deconstructed club, uh, 808 music, all that stuff. When I started getting into it, I started to see like the world has finally caught up. You know, I don't need to be kind of left of center, pushing everybody away in this kind of angry fit of rage. I'd rather do something that's a little bit more community driven. Like you said earlier, I want to bring everybody onto the same page. The world exactly. is already pushing everybody away. We have the internet now. You don't need the black CNN. You don't need rap to be this, the black CNN. We see what's going on in these communities every single day. So I kind of flipped and went into more of like the disco, like escapism, you know, open up a floor, provide great rhythms and frequencies and bring those people that need the protection, that need the uplifting, that need, you know, girls get shit on every fucking day, bro. You know it, your girl, you have a girl or a sister or a mom, you know what the fuck they go through every single day. If if I can throw parties where for eight hours, girls and gay people and, black, and white people too, everybody yeah, can come in and just forget about this shit for a few hours and enjoy themselves. I think that's what I really came to understand about club music and club culture is there is this church-like community thing aspect to it. And one last nerdy thing I'll say is, um, you know, I'm a big fan of black gospel music. I have a lot of gospel music from the 40s through now, even modern gospel, uh, church music. And um, if you listen to, you know, I, I recorded the Harlem Gospel Choir on a, on a punk record I did with John Spencer from the Blues Explosion like eight years ago, believe it or not. But uh, we had all these punk legends come in to do these. A lot of punk guys, I don't know if you know, as they get older, they get into rockabilly and they get into, yeah, into yeah. country and they get into, into a lot of gospel. So I was doing a record with these legendary guys that were literally 10 years older than me. We got like Keith from the Flesh Tones to come in and do solos and all these legendary people. And so we got this, this, this young brother from the Harlem uh, Memorial Baptist Choir to come in and do piano parts, right? And this guy was so sick. I don't know if you know how sick church musicians are, man, but they literally make like jazz guys seem like punk guys, you know, like it's, insane right so he's like on the phone with his fiance texting talking and he's got one hand and he's doing the you know like that fucking the total run and his pinky is just tapping on this black key every once in a while like it's like it's the shit you can't teach people like indian musicians have it too like yeah you can teach people the strokes but then there's those little you know like tony iomi's got the thing with the one finger like you can't yeah. really teach that so i saw it in what he was doing and then I realized if you mute the piano in gospel music, don't, 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 what are you left with? You're left with. Yeah. 
music, disco. So then I really understood like gospel is club music. All there, all that disco was was to take the church and put the Caligula on, you know, make it hedonistic, make it sexual, make it drug oriented, you know. But it was basically church music on drugs and sex, you know. So that was the thing for me. I was like, you know, what is men's power? Our power is violence, right? We have the ability to get loud. We have the ability to, to get physical. What is women's power? Sex, right? So isn't there, is there not a fine line between sex and violence, hard sex? Isn't there a fine line between that and, 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 and actual violence? So I thought I've been writing violent music for 30 years. How do I turn that into hard sex and make it mosh parts for chicks, mosh parts for gay people, for black people? Instead Instead of empowering guys that are in army tanks right now in Iraq killing children listening to dialect records or whatever like uh, that always worried me I'm like yeah our music is so heavy you know are they killing innocent people in tanks listening to my records I hope not you know like so that was the whole thing right there you know I just realized you know I can make heavy music but it can be more sexual than than violent you know and I can I can make mosh parts for chicks I can make sabbath riffs on 808s for girls you know that's what strip club that's why everyone's responding to Cardi B and Megan the Stallion all this shit is hardcore for girls you know for the strip club you know so yeah so for me it was like if I can represent from Sesame Street, like super fun, super everybody's involved, everybody can relate to it, all the way to the hard side of the strip club, I'm in a good space, you know? Sesame Street to the strip club, that's kind of where I want to live, you know? Carnivals, bowling alleys, roller rinks, if my music can be played in those types of venues, basketball courts, then I know a community can enjoy it. Like guys, out here in Harlem, right, right outside my building at 135th is basketball courts, right? And, um, and when Kanye and Jay-Z did the Watch the Throne record, that shit literally sounds like dialect, right? That's good. That's good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, so, you know, Kanye did that Watch the Throne shit, and you know, at the end of the one song, it's like, like it literally sounds like absence, right? Yeah. And I remember when it dropped that summer, like 2013 or whatever, I'd go outside to the basketball courts and there'd be like 15 nine-year-old girls with the cornrows doing jump rope routines. And all you'd hear all over the neighborhood. And I just was like, yo, this is heavy metal for the fucking hood. This is Black Sabbath for the hood, you know? Exactly. So it's all the same shit. You're just trying to package it and present it in a way so you can communicate with a different audience, you know? I'm just giving girls, black people, gay people, and trans people Black Sabbath and Black Flag in the bad ones, you know? So I'm just giving it to them in their language. New, you know? new album, Sufi Service. Sufi Service just came out, yeah. Just, I, I think that just taking that concept worldwide, you know? You yes. Microtonal vocal stylings. Sure. I mean, that's a, I guess that's the last thing I'll say. I'm sure I'm like fucking monopolizing all of you, but like, so the last thing I'll say is, um, so that was the, the, the last ingredient as far as if you're talking about my evolution so far was A, I wanted to translate my mosh parts from like straight dudes to like the girls to the, to the dance floor, right? But then the other thing I started to notice is like I said, I'm obsessed with, you know, black church music. I'm obsessed with Muslim Sufi music. I'm obsessed with Buddhist devotional, Hindu bhajans. Uh, my family's from India. So I grew up, my, my dad's side was Muslim. My mom's side was Hindu. Neither were religious. So today they're still fighting like black and white. So 
you know, my family was very progressive. I wasn't raised religious, but I always liked all those records I grew up on. And I could connect, you hear it in dialect, you know, you hear the drones all over those records. I've had it, when I was in hardcore bands that sounded like Black Flag, there were drones in it, you know? It was like droney Black Flag, you know? Like, I always had this kind of Indian spiritual thing in my sound. So yeah, that was the third ingredient was like, you know what? I want to make, I call it future primitive. I want it to sound like 7,000 years ago, dudes around a campfire, banging drums, women dancing around them, birds flying overhead. I call it digital rainforest. You know, the whole thing is like primitive music, but made 7,000 years in the future. You know, so it's like years, that's all we had was, was whatever for percussion in our voice. Literally, you know, literally. So if you listen to, to a lot of background audio, all you hear is a bass line and a vocal sample. And that's the whole thing. So then I started to think, well, I have a whole gospel record coming soon. That's all these old black gospel field recordings that I cut up and put over my 808s. So Sufi Service was the first of that. It was like, well, let me take a lot of the music that I would hear uh, or the energy I would hear at my parents' house on Saturday mornings when my dad was making big breakfast for all of us, you know, me and my friends. He'd have these Indian records playing in the background. So I kind of wanted to get that energy of my parents, where I came from and, and my roots, but with the sound I'm on right now, you know, with the 808s and the club shit. Oh yeah, thanks guys, I appreciate it. Okay, John and Ed, thanks so much guys. I'm gonna follow you guys right now on the page too, so I appreciate yeah, it. Have a good one. Awesome guys. Have a great Saturday guys. You too. All right, you as well, be safe.